Joshua, the book of Joshua, and we'll begin there in just a moment. We are grateful that you are here this morning. We're thankful to all of our visitors who are with us. We have some who are visiting for the first time, maybe some who are, are passing through, and we're thankful that you have come our way. We also want to always emphasize we're thankful to our members. We're thankful for your attendance this day. It is a beautiful day. We've had a beautiful service so far. We appreciate all those who have led us. We usually want to make mention of that. We appreciate Carl, his leading our thoughts in, around our communion time, Brother Tom and his wonderful prayers. Appreciate Charles leading our singing. Uh, we're very proud of Charles for many reasons, but thankful on Friday night that he did a very good job uh, at the area-wide meeting, and that was did a good job presenting in that. I'd have been happy for him to present that lesson to you this morning. The problem is Charles preaches too short, and I can't have that. I can't have you guys getting spoiled on short preaching. So whenever I'm gone on vacation or things and he does that, I'm thankful he fills in. But he always texts me almost as soon as probably the amen is said to tell me how long he preached and let me know that it's usually shorter than I go. So, But Charles did a wonderful job that is available on YouTube. Uh, all the lessons from the week uh, from the area-wide meeting are there on uh, the YouTube page for Gary McDade, and you can find those there, and we're thankful uh, Charles was able to speak, and Brian was able to lead singing, and we had a, a great time there together. If you can be with us again at 1.30, we're going to look at the word prophecy this afternoon. If you can stay for lunch, we'd love to invite you and have you be a part of our lunch. If you leave and get lunch and come back, that's fine. We understand. But, but we're going to look at the one word study that we've been doing, and in particular, the word prophecy. I realized as I was thinking about today that we've not done a word study. We've kind of been doing them once a month. We've also missed the book of the month for this month, and so we may have to double up uh, come June. But we're almost done with the Old Testament, and we are thankful for that. That study and hope that you can be back with us again for our afternoon services. We have been on Sunday morning going through a series of lessons. We've essentially covered the Old Testament. But what we admitted is that what sometimes happens is if we took a list of Old Testament characters, people, or Old Testament events, and we started right up here at the front, or we found some of the young people who are maybe under the age of 10 that are scattered throughout the audience, and we asked them questions about Abraham and Joseph and Joshua and all these people, they would probably be able to tell us exactly what's going on, who those people are, where you can find them, and all of those things. But if we went around and we asked the adults about some of those things, maybe it's your memory is slipping, like some ha sometimes happens to us, maybe you've forgotten some of those things. But what we've also acknowledged is that sometimes there are people who become Christians later in life, and what they do is they look and they hear the preacher talk about Abraham or talk about Joseph, and they say, I know I've heard that name, but I don't remember exactly where that story is found or, or what happens in regards to that particular person. And so it might be beneficial for us to have what we have called a Sunday school catch-up, to kind of go through the Old Testament and try to get an understanding of all the things. Now look, I admit, the Old Testament is large, there are all kinds of chapters, there are lots of verses, it's very hard sometimes to arrange in our mind exactly a timeline of what is happening in the Old Testament. We have attempted to try to, to, to break it down maybe to the mountain peak moments or some of the, the big things that happen. We've covered the book of Genesis and we've talked about some of those moments. Of course, the creation of this beautiful world we just mentioned, the creation of man. And we know that then man is placed in the garden. And unfortunately, very quickly in our Bible, we read about sin separating man from God. You see, I make mention of that sometimes as we go through the invitation, and I say to you that maybe your sin is separating you from God. But what we need to know is that that's not something that's just made up. Not only does Isaiah say that in his book that it is written in the Bible, but also it happens physically here, that man is physically separated from God because of sin. 
So it's worth noting what takes place in the garden, in the fall of man, as we say. We know that just a few pages later, it's amazing. It's amazing, but the thought of man is only evil continually. That's how bad it gets right there at the very beginning. So God decides to destroy the world by water with a flood. Just a few pages after the flood is over, we meet a, young, a man, not a young man, but a man by the name of Abram, who becomes Abraham. Abraham begats Isaac, and Isaac begats Jacob. And Jacob has his name changed to Israel. You see, one of the things we need to emphasize is somebody says, I hear about the children of Israel. I don't know what you're talking about. Who are those children of Israel? Well, they're, they're people, the, the people of Israel, who was originally named Jacob. Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons. One of those was Joseph. And we met Joseph a few weeks ago, and we talked about Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis and how he was able, through God's providence, to lead the children of Israel, which were not that many at that time, to Egypt. But we began the book of Exodus by saying there arose a king who did not know Joseph. And it's sad because then they began to trouble the people and they make their burdens very strong as they are slaves. But that's okay because we meet Moses, right? Moses comes onto the scene and, and he interacts as God's spokesman with Pharaoh. And you remember the, the ten plagues, right? And let my people go. And he says no. And so it takes ten plagues for Pharaoh to finally release the people. They cross the Red Sea. They exit Egypt. And then they're going to make their way to the peninsula of Sinai, where Mount Sinai is. We tried to share some maps, and I always tell you, I know that they're hard to see sometimes, maybe from your seat. But up in the top left-hand corner is the Nile, the Nile Delta, around Egypt where they were. They traveled down to this bottom of the map where you see Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. There they're going to receive the law. The law of Moses is what we call it. It's what God's people are going to live by for years it's how God, God has told them what he wants, what he expects, and then what they are supposed to do. And it's called the law of Moses. In fact, in our Wednesday night class about stewardship and giving, we made mention of the fact that the rich young ruler would have been living under the law of Moses. Even in the New Testament, until Jesus dies on the cross, those people would have been practicing this law that was given at Mount Sinai there at that time. The last time we discussed the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, also Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy tell the story of the people wandering in the wilderness. And if you can make it out, in the top right-hand corner, there's a little black dot that says Hebron. And there's a little blue, you know, looks like lake to us there, a little small body of water. And we came forward, and you can see Hebron now there in the bottom. And there's the top of that body of water. As the book of Deuteronomy ends, this is where the children of Israel have made it to. They've wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, and they have finally made it to the promised land, although not into the promised land just yet. They have come to the other side, the right side of the Jordan River. They've camped right inside the, the yellow arc there of that oval, and they're going to cross over. And if you can make it out in red, there's the name Jericho. That's the first place they're going to be headed for as they are going to what we might call the theme of Joshua, conquer and possess. You see, if we're going to kind of take Joshua and try to break it down, what's happened is Joshua, it, Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy. Joshua is going to take over. And the book of Joshua is really about a lot of battles. It really is. And it really deals with a lot of, of things that are going on in those regards, a, a lot of fights and battles, if you will. And so the theme would be to go in and to conquer and possess. Now, if you were with us before, you remember, Moses and many of the children of Israel are not going to be able to go in. Those who had been involved in sin in the wilderness, they're not going to enter. 
But Joshua is going to lead the people. What we want to do this morning with the theme of Sunday school catch-up in the book of Joshua and the idea of conquer and possess is try to cover this in just a few moments. Now, I'll confess, in the fall when I had the chance to teach at the Greens Lake Road uh, congregation in the Chattanooga School of Preaching, I covered it in 13 weeks. So we got a lot of material to get through in about... 20 minutes or so left here, all right? So one thing that we've done through these lessons is use some Bible school material to try to cover some of these things. Many people will remember, probably for a long time, bringing the flannel graph up here and being able to use those particular things. We've used some other things, but there's a series of cards that our young people have used before, and I'm going to put them on the screen as well, but we're going to try to work through the book of Joshua the way our young people have. And these are some cards that they've used and the kind of teachers can use to tell the story. And Joshua, as we meet Joshua, is someone who is involved in battle. In fact, he is someone who is going to be an assistant to Moses. And he's involved as the children of Israel are going to Mount Sinai with helping Moses in battle. At the bottom of the picture, you can see a picture, what we might think looks like Mount Sinai there. Joshua is involved as Moses' assistant with going up with him to the mountain, or at least a part of the mountain. He doesn't go all the way maybe to meet God in that sense, but he's involved very closely with Moses because he has been in training. And maybe what's most well-known about Joshua until we get to the book, of course, is those grapes, right? Those things that they find because Joshua is one of the 12. Remember, we sing about it with our young people, 10 saw bad, 2 saw good, and Joshua is one of the two faithful spies who comes back and reports, look, it's hard, it's difficult, but I promise that we can do it with God on our side. And so Joshua has been, as we sometimes say, groomed, if you will, groomed to follow in Moses' footsteps. And if you opened up to the book there, you see that Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, or excuse me, 34, and, and it's very, very sad. The people are going to be mourning for a time, but Joshua's got to take over. And so then the book begins with three words that we might say that help us also get the theme of Joshua, and that is the idea of strength and courage and success. Now, I mentioned to you that our young people usually know this, and these really do, because we studied this just a couple of years ago under our Lads to Leaders program. But one of the questions in the Bible Bowl, I believe, was how many times in the first chapter does God say, be strong and of good courage? There's several places there, if you just look at chapter 1, where God talks about strength and he talks about courage. And the point is, is that if you will have strength and courage, not in yourself, not in what you can do, but in the power of God, then you can absolutely have success. In fact, not only can you, but you absolutely will have success. Because I'm telling you, be strong and of good courage, and I promise you that, that I will be with you, and I will guide you as you go into the land and you conquer and possess. Now, as we go, bef before we get into the land, we know that, the, that Joshua is going to send two spies. You remember the two spies that go over? This is not 12, but two. This is a picture of Rahab who is hiding the two spies on her roof because the people of Jericho know they're there. They're trying to find them. And Rahab, who is a harlot, takes the time to talk with them. You remember that she says, I know that the God that you serve. I realize how powerful he is. The word is going forth and it's being shared about what he has done for you. And we are afraid. We are not strong and courageous, but you are because you have God. So she hides the two spies and then lets them loose and so that they are not caught by the men. And in fact, she sends the, other, the men a different way. 
She says, go look for them here. And so the spies are able to return and they're able to tell Joshua what they've seen and how they are going to be able to take the land. If you ask a lot of people as they think about the Old Testament, many people know that there is a crossing of water, right? There's a crossing of water. But how many people know that there's actually two and can name the bodies of water? See, we just mentioned a moment ago that as the children exit Egypt in the Exodus, they cross the Red Sea. But that's not the only time. Remember that map in the middle of that yellow circle, there was more water, and we call it the Jordan River, and they've got to get across. I love this particular instance here, although the other one is wonderful as well to think about the power of God. But you can see in this picture the fact that Joshua tells the priest to take the Ark of the Covenant and to go into the water. And as they do, you can see, of course, this is just an artist's artist rendition, but that the water is going to start parting. And the Bible there talks about even the fact that it is a time when this shouldn't happen. It's a time when there is a lot of water. But millions of people, probably, millions of people are going to cross over on dry land. It's such a momentous occasion that Joshua tells the people that they need to pick up 12 rocks, 12 stones, one from each tribe. And another thing that sometimes gets confusing to people is there are actually two monuments of 12 stones. Joshua sets one up in the middle of the water, or I guess before the water comes back and everything settles again, he sets 12 stones up in the middle of the water. But once they cross, they take 12 more stones, one from each tribe, and they set up a memorial. Now, as you study Abraham, and as you study the Old Testament, it's wonderful to think about the altars and the memorials that people built. They're tributes to God and how they would worship God. We've talked about this before, but do you remember that Joshua sets these 12 stones up on the other side, on the west side of the Jordan, actually in the land of Canaan, so that they would have a reminder. Again, we appreciate Carl leading us in the thoughts around the Lord's table this morning and taking the communion. You know what that is? It's a chance for us to be reminded about the death of Christ. Joshua tells the people, set up these 12 stones, and when you make that monument, that memorial, and your children look at that pile of rocks, and they say, what is up with those 12 rocks? You got a teaching moment. You got a teachable moment, and you can tell them, here's what these stones mean. They mean that God was with us, that we were strong and courageous, that we crossed that body of water right there, and that we have power and we have ability because we trust in God. Of course, the most well-known story, maybe from the beginning of the book of Joshua, is the city of Jericho. The people show up to the city of Jericho, right? And they begin the most innovative battle plan known to man, right? Marching around a wall. There's a children's show that, that has some singing in it and in that and trying to tell the story in a way that children might can understand. There's a song that goes along and it says, the, the, from the perspective of the people in Jericho, keep walking, but you won't knock down our wall because it's not going to fall. You idiots, for lack of a better phrase, you're walking and you expect to defeat us. And you can see in that picture the people just watching. And if you remember, God's instructions were to march around the wall six days, one time a day for six days, and then on the seventh day to march around seven times. And you can see in this picture that they are blowing their trumpets. They're following the ark as well. There's a whole procession. God tells Joshua exactly how they're to line up. And if they do exactly what God says, they have strength and they have courage. They will have success. 
Now, for the sake of time this morning, I didn't bring up all the, the different charts and pictures that go along with this. There's a few that remind us that while this battle plan did not require missiles or arrows or, or any kind of thing like that, once the wall fell, they did have to go in and conquer and possess the city of Jericho. And they did just that. What an amazing thought to think about that something that would never work, something that would be laughed at, is what is going to take down this great fortified city. Now they did go into the city and they did conquer and possess it, but we see in the book of Joshua around chapter 4, excuse me, going a little further, chapter 6 and 7, with the defeat of Jericho, that we meet a man by the name of Achan. And so they do go in and conquer and possess, but God gives them specific instructions to not take of certain things. They're not to take them for themselves as spoils of war. But this man, Achan, does just that. In this particular picture, we see what we find out later in chapter 7, that he has taken some of those accursed things and he has hid them underneath his tent. How do we know that? How does Joshua find that out? Well, chapter 7 is the wonderful story about how Israel gets knocked flat on their rear end, as we might say. These people who have conquered so many different territories, who have already knocked down the walls, all of a sudden, they're defeated. They go to the city of Ai, and they try to win a battle there, but they are defeated. And they have some men who die, and they're left asking, why? How? We trust in God. What's going on? But we see that Joshua has this interaction with God, and God tells him exactly what's going on. There is sin in the camp. Do you know that every time we sin, we don't always suffer automatically? I bet you do, because like me, you probably experience that. And by that, I mean that you've probably gotten away with something. I don't mean that to call you out, because I'm confessing that I've done the same thing. Maybe you told a lie. What happened is nothing. Nobody found out for a while. But as we learn from the story of Achan, what happens when we do sin is that we know and God knows. Now, in the Old Testament, God worked a little differently than he does in the New Testament today. And with Achan, he has this conversation with Joshua. He explains about the sin of Achan and he tells them, you need to get the sin out of the camp. And unfortunately, Achan loses his life because of what he has done. But again, there's great parallels between us hiding sin the need to get the sin out of the camp or out of our lives. And so when Achan does that, then the people are able to go back to, or when they then kill Achan because of his sin and they make things right with God, they're able to then go on and defeat the city of Ai. They're thankful for that because now they are right with God again. They are faithful. They can be strong and courageous, and he has promised them success. In the book of Joshua, there are a lot of stories that just kind of go along, and they're you know, not maybe the most major things from the Old Testament, but we learn a little bit about our relationship with God, how He works with mankind. I know it's the Old Testament. We don't live under that law anymore, but yet we can see what God expects for mankind. There are a few other stories that are similar to that. One of those is the story of the Gibeonites. If you turn over to chapter 9, the story of the Gibeonites deal with the fact that these people make a treaty with Joshua. And Joshua and the children of Israel do not consult with God, but instead they make this treaty with them. We say, well, what's wrong with that? That's not such a big deal. Well, it is because the Gibeonites had tricked the children of Israel. You see in this picture an animal, you see bread, you see men standing there. You see what the Gibeonites did is kind of like Rahab 
the harlot there in chapter 2, they recognize the power of the children of Israel because they have God on their side. So they say, the only way that we can do something is to resort to making friends with them and not just asking for that, but to, make a, to try to trick them. They deceive them. What they do is they travel from Gibeon to, to Joshua and the people there, but it's a short trip. Now, of course, you know as well as I know, we've talked about this, short trip across the desert by Camelback is not exactly short, but what they do is they have their bread and they make it moldy. They have their wineskins and they have their clothes and they make them look old. They beat them up and they make them look real dirty. And they make a relatively short trip to Joshua and the people and they say, oh, look how long a trip we've made. If we are here with you today, it must be because we've traveled thousands of miles over many days because our clothes are worn out, our wineskins are worn out, and our bread is moldy. But see, that wasn't true. That was deceit. But Joshua and the people, they don't consult God. They don't ask if this is okay, but they go ahead and make a treaty with them. And because of this, they've got a problem on their hand. They now have struck this treaty, and they're going to be true to it. But God has told them, this was wrong. You did not consult with me. But this is just another one of those stories in there that is helpful as we think about the book of Joshua. And it helps us really think about how they are going about the land, and they are conquering, and they are going to possess Go forward maybe in your Bible another page or two to chapter 10. And you notice in chapter 10 the story of the sun standing still. Do you remember that? The sun stands still for a time because the people of God are doing battle, because they're trying to do their best to conquer and possess the land. And in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 15, we see that God is involved with what is happening. In fact, notice again in verse number 10, So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. Chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down. And God is involved in these things. And it says that not only in verse number 11 is the sun going to stand still, but there's going to be large hailstones that are come down from heaven. And in verses 12 and 13, there's this mention of the fact that the sun stood still and the moon stopped. If you've heard me ever preach about the Old Testament, I ask the question, and maybe this picture sums it up pretty good. What will it take for you to believe in God? What will it take for you to be faithful to Him? You know, the sun standing still is pretty powerful. But so isn't water stopping and parting for millions of people to walk across? So isn't walls falling down simply because we've been marching around them? What would it take for us to believe in God? to have strength and to have courage and then to have good success. See, I think it's important for us to study the book of Joshua because as the children of Israel are going to go about these things, they've got to be strong and courageous. They've got to understand that they are going to conquer and possess the land because of the promises of God. See, the same thing is true before Joshua, in Joshua's time, and the same thing is true of us today. What can happen is, if we feel that we've got the power, we say, well, it must be something that I've done. You know, last week we talked about baptism. We talked about works. We said that we are not saved by works. And why is that? Well, it's because of something similar to this. Because every time we win a battle, 
And every time if we said, well, there's so many things that we need to do in order to be saved, then we would eventually think that it's by our hand that we accomplish these things, not by the hand of God. The book of Joshua is a powerful reminder that God is in control and that God will give us success, not in every single thing, but he will give us success as we are strong and of good courage and we follow after him. The book of Joshua is not just about conquering and possessing, though. What we see is the promised land. We finally meet the land of Canaan. And if you remember from that map a few moments ago, and you can see the Dead Sea kind of towards the center, bottom center right of that picture there. The people have come to the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now, just real quickly make mention that you can see the Jordan River kind of going up in the middle, and there were two and a half tribes that settled on the east side of the river. So when we come to that map and we see them cross over, they, they do cross over. But what happens in Joshua chapter 1, before they cross over, is some of the people decide to stay on the east side of the Jordan. They send their soldiers to fight, and they stay. When the conquering and the possessing is done, they go back. And they're able to, to, to then have that land on the east side. But when we commonly think of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that they had been promised, it's everything between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And here in Joshua, we read about them conquering and possessing, and we might even add in a third thing there, dividing the land. Now, what's interesting to me about Joshua is, as you read the first 10 chapters or so, it's a lot of good action. It's a lot of good stories. You get past chapters 11 and 12 and towards the back half of the book, and there's a lot of dividing. There's a lot of, there's this many people, and they go and they sit in this particular area of land, and it's very hard to read, right? I'll, I'll admit that. It's very hard to read sometimes the dividing of the land. But it helps us to remember God's promises. You know, I usually make the joke to you about the genealogies, right? We hate reading the genealogies. Made poor Keith read some names not too long ago as he got up and read scripture. And we struggle to read through that. But we were reminded that those genealogies are there because we know the promises of God are sure. Can I encourage you as you look at the book of Joshua this morning, and maybe as you take time to look through it later today and in the coming week, that yes, the first 10 chapters or so are important to the action, and they're good to read when it comes to the battle, but the back half is pretty important as, in, as well as we think about the land being divided. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abram that he would give him land. He made a land promise, and we see that fulfilled here. What does that mean for me and you? Well, I think that one thing it means is that when God tells you and tells me that there's a promised land waiting for us in heaven, I think he'll make good on his promise. I think it's true. Appreciate Charles leading the songs that he has over these last few lessons and thinking about. We've sung about to Canaan's land, I'm on my way. We sang this morning about to the promised land because God has promised us a land and we can inherit it. We don't have to conquer it. That's been done but we can possess it. When we think about this book of Joshua, you're probably familiar with the end as well. Joshua has lived a full life and he has finally come to the end of his life. And I imagine as you look at chapters 23, excuse me, and 24, Joshua's got a lot to say. He's got a lot to tell the people. See, the book of Joshua is really a clean one. It opens with Joshua taking over as the leader and it ends with Joshua's death. And he tells the people many great things. 
He reminds them of the promises of God. And you know what happens at the end of chapter 24, specifically verse number 15, right? It's a phrase that's on the wall at our house. It may be on the wall at your house as well. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua makes that declaration there. He says, we are going to do what's right. You, I mean, you can do what you want. You can go and worship other gods. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I can tell you what God has done for me. And there's a beautiful set of speeches there where Joshua talks about what the Lord has done. I know it's hard to get through the dividing of, of the land, but I would encourage you to go home maybe and read over the next few days, chapters 23 and 24 there at the end, and think about what Joshua says to the encouragement of the people that they need to follow God. We're thankful for God's promises. We're thankful that he has made those same promises to us and while we will not inherit the promised land in that particular map that we looked at, we can inherit the promised land, and that is the promised land of heaven. You see, we look at the story of Joshua, and we think about how wonderful God is with his promises. And we are thankful this morning that we can partake in God's promises as well. He has promised that those who would hear his word and believe the word of God have an opportunity to be saved. But as we talked about last week, it's not believing alone that saves us. You can't say, I believe in Jesus, and that's simply it. Because Jesus also says in Luke 13, 3, that you have to repent of your sins. You've got to change your mind and then change your actions by repenting of your sin. But guess what? That alone doesn't save you. You must also confess Jesus as Lord, because with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Once you do all that, you're ready to be baptized for the remission of sins. God's statement, the statement of Jesus, the statement through the writers of the New Testament by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, is that if we will be baptized for the remission of our sins, we can be added to the church by the Lord and we can begin to live faithfully. If you're here this morning you're not a child of God, we'll be singing this song of encouragement to encourage you to enjoy God's promises by becoming a child of God this very day. Or as we usually say, we'll study with you as soon as possible so that you can take advantage of those promises. Maybe you're here and you've done that in times past, but you've wandered away. You've struggled to remain faithful. We're thankful that God doesn't kill us the first time we mess up. We're thankful in a, in a similar way that we don't have to be baptized time and time again every time that we mess up. But we can come to him in repentance, confessing our sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us. Brother or sister, if you're here today and you've wandered away, we'll sing to encourage you as well that you would come back to him. There's no better place and there's no better time than to be among family to make your relationship right with God, even now as we stand together and as we sing.